Well, we return this week to the topic of heaven and preaching a short series on hell and heaven. Normally we say heaven and hell, but uh, since I started with hell first, got the bad news out of the way a couple of weeks ago, uh, we've moved on to the topic of heaven. It's a theological sermon where we look at different texts and, and summarize those and pull out some points. We need to know more about heaven. We don't know enough about heaven. We don't think enough. Even if we know, we don't think enough about heaven. And so much of, of heaven and our modern mindset has been corrupted. It's been corrupted by the world. It's been corrupted by media and movies and books. It's been corrupted by even church teaching that emphasizes the spiritual aspect over the physical aspect. And so I want to go back through the six points that I looked at last week. There's 12 in all that I came up with for heaven. I'm sure you could come up with many, many more. But we went through six last week, and Lord willing, we'll look at the final six today. Last week, we talked about how heaven was immediate upon the death of a believer. Even though when we die, we don't have a fully resurrected body yet. Our soul, our spirit, goes to the place where God is, where Christ is. We go to heaven. It's, it's an intermediate state because it's not the final state we'll be in. But we do go to a place with Christ, a place we call heaven, a place that we can't see, a place that none of us has ever experienced. And we go to be with Christ. Then number two, we looked at eternal life. And in eternal life, we get a resurrected body. When Christ comes back, he takes all who are his and he gives them a resurrected body. And then we eventually end up reigning a thousand years with Him upon the earth. And then, number three, the whole earth is restored. The whole universe, the whole creation is restored. It's great that we get a resurrected body, isn't it? Eternal life, no more sin, no more suffering. We get to live forever and ever with Christ. But even after a thousand years of that blessing, He restores everything. It makes everything perfect. And so we get to have a physical, real existence upon a new earth, a perfect earth. And with that, number four comes a glorious city, the new Jerusalem, the celestial city, which comes down from heaven. And it's described in so much detail. And I mentioned to you last week that people think of heaven as just a spiritual existence, but there's actually more in the Bible on a future physical existence called heaven on the new earth. Much more than there is about the intermediate state where we go between the time we die and the time we come back to the earth. The glorious city is described in detail. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's going to be huge. The footprint is half the size of the United States right now. It's going to go up as high as it is wide. Such a glorious city. Streets of gold. That part that's often repeated in our culture is true. There will be streets of gold and jewels. And gates made out of a pearl. One pearl for a whole gate. Will also be in the presence of Christ. As wonderful as heaven is. As often as we think about all the, the great things in heaven. The most precious thing there is Christ our Lord. It's the very thing we should desire. The person we should desire to be with. If we have all these other things without Christ. It's really not heaven. Being with God is heaven. So right now Christ is in heaven. We go there to be with Him. When He comes back, heaven will be upon the earth, the new earth. And then number six, we looked at perfect holiness. 
What does it mean to be in heaven? It means perfect holiness. No more sin. No more sin. That you can do everything with your mind and eventually with your body that honors the Lord because there's no sin. And you don't have to struggle. And you don't have to fight. And you don't have to fight with others that sin against you. No more sin. Perfect holiness. And I mentioned last week, and I'll say again this week, all of these should make you desire heaven. Not that we want to short-circuit God's timeline for when we'll get there, but we should desire it. We should long for it. We should think about it. The Bible talks a lot about it, so we should be having it in our minds and in our sermons and in our teaching. We'll move on today to look at six more. And really, none of these are any more important than the other except being with Christ. That's the most important one. And I only put it number five in the list because he comes and brings the rain upon the earth. Well, number seven. Number seven. Heaven is full of peace, comfort, and joy. It's full of peace, comfort, and joy. Of course it is. There's no more sin. And it's all been restored. Peace means shalom in in Hebrew. Shalom. Peace. It means a well-being that comes from peace with God. It includes every blessing and all the riches God gives us. Having peace with God means having your sins forgiven into eternity. It means having no more effects of sin upon you. It means having eternal comfort and joy. Now, we often think of this with eternal life, and that's, that's okay. I'm just separating it out so we could focus on it. Christ promises us peace. And often that's emphasized in this life. And that's great. I'm glad that we're justified. I'm I'm happy that we have peace with God now. But that peace with God lasts into eternity. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on in Romans 5.10 to say, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. We'll be saved. We'll be saved from the wrath of hell to experience peace, comfort, and joy in heaven. Peace with God. Peace in our soul. Peace in our body. The kind of peace that only comes from God. That only God could give. God is at peace. And we'll be at peace. You can't get this peace from anything else today in the world. You can't get this peace from politics, from government. God works through those things. God ordained those things pleasures, all of these things that we try to get peace with. And you know where peace is found? It's found with God. It's found with Christ. And it certainly is only found in heaven when we start talking about eternity. Peace cannot be found in hell. Sometimes people joke that hell is going to be more fun and there's a party going on there and heaven's going to be boring. Well, first of all, that's dishonoring to the Lord to even joke like that. Secondly, it just tells you the misconceptions that we have as Americans about heaven and hell. No, Heaven's going to be the party of peace, comfort, and joy to start with. And it's going to be great there. And hell's going to be the opposite. We looked at that two weeks ago. If you weren't here, go back and listen to the sermon on hell. I've heard some from parents, some parents that that was a real blessing uh, for their kids to hear a sermon on hell. And it's already started to move in their child's heart to think more about Christ. Well, peace as a result of, of God's gracious work in our life. We, we cannot... Come to heaven without God doing a gracious work in our life. That's why Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. 
Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Why? Why, Jesus? Are you saying nothing bad is ever going to happen to us? That's not what he said. He didn't say our life was going to be perfect and peaceful, full of comfort and joy. That's called the prosperity gospel. That if you just believe and have faith, everything will be great. And you'll be at peace with with money and the world. No, Jesus said the opposite. The world's going to hate you. The world's going to persecute you. There'll be times when you don't have anything. There'll be times when you think everyone has abandoned you. But, he says, my peace I leave with you. The peace that we have for eternity. The peace that we have when he comes back and we join with him for eternity in the flesh. Even in the Old Testament, we see this kind of peace and joy. Psalm 1611. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. To be in God's presence for eternity is joy. It is joy. It's the definition, really, of joy. Isaiah 35, verse 10. And the ransomed of the Lord. Look at that. That's New Testament language, isn't it? The ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion. Hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ, we have this prophecy that the ransomed, those who are redeemed, are coming back with the Lord. They're coming to the mountain, to the city, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. We'll have joy eternally. So there's, there is no sighing. There is no sorrow. We'll be free from the effects of sin in our life. It's one thing to be free from sin. Christ was, was free from sin. He did not sin. But he wasn't free from the effects of sin in his life. That's why he died. That's how he could die. He did not have a resurrected body yet. It was susceptible to misery, pain, tribulations. But his resurrected body is not. And ours won't be either. That's one of the reasons we'll have this joy. We can't be miserable anymore. We can't experience pain anymore. We can't feel even sorrow anymore. Tribulations will be gone. Troubles will be gone. And even death will be gone. When we're with Christ in heaven, the effects of sin are no longer upon us. We're going to rest from our labors. Paul says in Philippians 3.20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. We'll have that kind of joy and peace. We'll have a perfect glorified body. We already spoke about this when we talked about eternal life, but the implications of that is that we will no longer experience the sadness of death. That famous verse often Mentioned at funerals, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Paul's using that verse from the Old Testament in the context of the resurrection. It's not just something we think about when a loved one in Christ dies. But it's in the context of the resurrection. They're going to come back and get a new body. No more death to worry about. And no more sadness over loved ones who die. We've all had loved ones who've died. We've all... Uh, had someone close to us in life that's passed away. There will be no more sadness over that. That can never happen again. Revelation 21.4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Daniel 12.3, also cited by Jesus. Those who have insight, those who understand the gospel, he's, he's pointing towards the gospel Daniel is. 
Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That's the kind of joy we'll have. I don't know if this literally is to be taken, that we'll have some sort of shining appearance in our glorified body, but it's certainly a glorious experience of joy, of comfort, of peace. It's something we can hardly imagine. What will that even be like? What is it like to live without any pain, without any suffering, to know no suffering at all? We can't imagine it, but the Bible promises it. Number eight, heaven is a place of unending worship. It's a place of unending worship. Worship is the purpose of all creation. It's it's the reason that God designed all things, that He created all things. The reason for which believers were redeemed. We were supposed to worship and praise God. Mankind fell into sin and turned to their own desires and lusts. But when we're redeemed in Christ, we come back together and worship. And you should be worshiping in your own life every day. John MacArthur wrote a whole book on it. He called worship the ultimate priority. It's the ultimate priority in our life. And we're going to be worshiping the Lord forever and ever. And this is where people say, well, that sounds boring. We're sitting on a cloud with a harp and just sort of playing the same song over and over. It doesn't sound boring when you read it in Scripture. First of all, we're not sitting on a cloud in a spiritual existence. We're in a physical body on the earth. Experiencing all the things, of course, that we experience now in worship, but even more. And do you know right now in heaven, worship is going on? Right now in heaven. Doesn't sound very boring. Go to Revelation chapter 4. Singing primarily is what we see mentioned here. Praising God, shouting, shouts of joy. But Revelation 4, John sees a scene in heaven. This is after the rapture, but we don't start to see the people mentioned until we get to chapter 5. But in 4.8, we already see the four living creatures. These are angelic beings. Each one of them having six wings are full of eyes around and within. Day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. They're constantly Shouting praises to their creator God. Constantly shouting praises to the Lord. They're worshiping God. Verse 10. The 24 elders. So we start with angels and then we see these 24 elders representing the church that's been taken up with Christ. The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God. To receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And because of your will. They existed and were created. God created all things. To worship him. To honor him. To praise him. To glorify him. And even now we don't do that enough. We get distracted. We think of ourselves and our flesh. But those in heaven now. And will be in heaven. During the tribulation. Are worshiping God. Chapter 5. Go to chapter 5 of Revelation in verse 11. We get another glimpse here. This is after the, the seals have been broken. And judgment's about to come upon the earth. But that's not a time of sadness for those in heaven. It's a time of praising God. It's a time of worshiping God. God's judgment is righteous and true. Something that 
we should want as Christians to see. Then I looked. Revelation 5.11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice. So we just have an uncountable number of angels. And what did they say? Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. That's going to be an exciting scene. And something like that will happen regularly upon the new earth. Just to see one of these creatures worshipping with us is going to be amazing. Not to mention that Christ is there. Not to mention that we're around His throne worshipping Him. Worship is going to be eternal. Revelation 14, go over to chapter 14 now. In the midst of this tribulation that's coming upon the earth, there's still worship going on. Chapter 14, verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was the sound of harpists playing on their harps. So there will be harps in heaven. There should be other instruments too. We'll get there. But they're playing harps and they sang a new song. There are many new songs in Revelation. This is a new song, one that one that we'll have to learn. A new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. And he goes on to say who they are. Jewish people who've been saved, Jewish believers. Revelation 15. Verse 2, and I saw something like a sea of glass. So he sees another vision from heaven here. I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. What happens to people who die when they're persecuted? And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God. The Almighty, righteous and true are your ways. King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. And all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. They're going to sing. They're going to praise God. This is wonderful. This is something spoken of in the Old Testament that would come to pass. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 12. They will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion. They will be radiant over the bounty of the Lord. And he goes on to talk about the offerings that they will give. And there's dancing. And that there's singing. And that there's praising God. Yes, even dancing. It's not bad. Godly dancing done in the right way. We're certainly going to be doing that in heaven. Some of us are going to have to practice a bit before we get there. We're just going to be dancing to the Lord. There's trumpets and harps mentioned in Revelation. There's other instruments in Psalm 150. Let's look at Psalm 150. Sometimes Christians say instruments are wrong. They're not honoring to the Lord. Well, they were in the Old Testament and they're going to be in heaven. So 
It's not wrong to assume they're fine now in the church. As long as they're done in an orderly way and they accompany singing and praise. Psalm 150, look at these instruments. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty expanse. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with harp and lyre. Praise Him with timbrel and dancing. Praise Him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Everything that has breath, that includes humans, but the word in Hebrew also is wind. Any kind of instrument that makes a noise that's pleasing and honoring to the Lord. There's going to be music. There's going to be dancing. There's going to be worship. And if you have a problem with worship now, you're really going to have a problem with heavenly worship that lasts forever and ever. And we all have our desires, favorite songs, different thoughts and theology, sometimes on worship, music and such. But if you simply hate singing in the church, that's a problem. I once had somebody say to me, we need less singing here. Just get to the sermon. And he quoted somebody from church history. I said, we'll never have less singing than we have. I think we've added some songs to our normal worship since then. It's good to sing. Some churches sing for two hours. In America even, two hours before the sermon starts. It's good. We're going to do it in heaven. We might as well practice now. Get good at it now. Not good according to the world, but just in your heart. Love, love, love. Worshiping through song and praising God. Number nine. What's heaven going to be like? Well, it's going to be a place of peace, comfort, and joy. It's going to be a place of unending worship. And it will be a place where we have holy service to the Lord. We will be serving Him. We will be serving Him with all that we are. We'll be loving God with every fiber of our being. Now, worship is service. Worship is service. We're serving the Lord spiritually. But when we give holy service to the Lord, in this case, I'm talking about with our actions, with our work, with all that we do with our body. Worship is service. But there's going to be abundant opportunities to serve God with with all of our redeemed humanity. Not just our voice and our spirit and our heart, but with our bodies. We're not going to just sit around and do nothing. I don't even know that we're going to sing and and worship in front of the Lord in the New Jerusalem all day. It doesn't sound like it when we look at some of these verses. That will happen regularly, I'm sure. And we'll be singing in our hearts all the time. But there's work to be done. There's work to be done on the new earth. The original creation. Think about Genesis 1, Genesis 2. What did God say He created mankind for? The intent was for man to rule and subdue the earth, to take care of the garden, to cultivate it, to work. Work is a good thing. It's not till sin comes in that work becomes hard, that we begin to not like work, that we become complainers about work, that we get lazy, that we get angry about work. Well, Adam failed. He failed to do his job. He failed big time. But the second Adam did not fail. And the second Adam is going to come back and reinstitute perfect work upon the earth. What are we going to do into eternity? We're going to worship the Lord and we're going to work for the Lord. This new earth, this new city is not a place just of spiritual existence. You've heard me say that. It's a place of real physical existence. So what are you going to do 
with this resurrected body. Well, Isaiah 65, I read to you earlier, they will build houses. They will build houses. City's coming down from heaven, so I'm not sure where we're going to build them. Probably outside the city. Re- repopulate as far as spread around the earth. And inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. There's probably going to be more than just home builders and farmers. There's no guarantee you're going to do the same type of job that you do now. But there will be work. And whatever it is, we'll love it. We'll enjoy it. Revelation 21. We go to the end of Revelation. Speaking of this new creation. 21-24. It says the nations will walk by its light. The light of the city. Because it's lit up by Christ. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The word glory here is their their produce, their their offerings, in a sense, to God. That's their fruit, their vegetables, their jewels, their creations. Everything that glorifies the Lord, they will bring it into the city. In the daytime, there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. The gates are always open. In ancient times, nighttime, the gates would shut to protect the city. The merchants who didn't make it in by nightfall would have to stay outside. And then they would come into the city the next day. There's going to be so much being produced upon the earth, being brought into this city. And the assumption is we're going to be eating and consuming some of this. That the gates are always open. And they're constantly, constantly bringing it in. Someone's got to be working to produce that. There's going to be work in heaven. God honoring work. We're never going to get tired from it either. Exhaustion's gone. Sin's gone. Frustration from work is gone. Thorns and thistles are gone. It's going to be wonderful. You're going to love it. Think of the most passionate thing you love to do. And heaven's going to be even better than that. Whatever you're assigned to do, you're going to love it. You're going to love your boss, Jesus. And you're going to love what you do. And if you have even people organized under you, which we'll get to in a moment, you're going to love that too. And they're going to love it. And everyone's going to be excited and thankful to work for the Lord. There's going to be nations. Nations will be restored. Nations aren't evil. People groups aren't evil. God designed them. Now they've been corrupted. They're evil today, of course. But they're going to be in the new earth. Isaiah 19, in that day. This is Isaiah 19, 24. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria. The nation Israel will be there. And then Egypt will be there in Assyria. Now, not everybody from those nations, right? Those who trust in Christ. But Isaiah is saying that there's going to be peace between Israel, Egypt, and Assyria. There's never been peace between Israel, Egypt, and Assyria. But Isaiah says there will be in that day a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. There's going to be people saved from all over the world, including Egypt and Assyria. It even goes on to say there's going to be a highway running from Assyria to Egypt right through Israel. A trade route. Revelation 22, verse 2. The tree of life is going to be in this new Jerusalem. And it says the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. It's going to be nations. It's going to be rulers of those nations. There's going to be culture. There's going to be social environment going on there political of some kind environment economic geographical agricultural it will be similar to what we have now 
but without any sin and so much better. It says that in Isaiah, let's go over to Isaiah 60. Let's just read that together. The uh, author, Randy Alcorn, who's written a book on heaven, says the products of human culture will play an important role on the new earth. It's important to God that there is things being produced for his glory. Isaiah 60, verse 1. Look at the description here. Now, sometimes in Isaiah, you might have noticed this when I read, sometimes the millennial kingdom and the eternal state sort of get blended. So you heard about Isaiah talking about death in chapter 65, I think it was. And sometimes they get blended. So it wasn't the Old Testament's goal to separate everything. We see it more clarified in the New Testament. But I think he is pointing here to an eternal state, a new earth. Look at the kind of culture and produce and things that exist here in the first nine verses. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you and His glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. So all these nations are still in existence. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar. Your daughters will be carried in the arms. Then you will see and be radiant. And your heart will thrill and rejoice because of the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. There's going to be wealth. It's going to flow into the new Jerusalem. Verse 6, a multitude of camels. It's going to be animals. We already talked about that last week with the restored universe. But there's going to be animals. Camels carried merchandise. Caravans of camels will cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. Everyone's praising the Lord. Everyone's working for the Lord. And they're bringing all these things up to the new Jerusalem to celebrate and honor and give to the Lord. All the flocks of Keter will be gathered together to you. The rams of Nebioth will minister to you. They will go up with acceptance on my altar and I shall glorify my glorious house. Who are these who fly like a cloud and like the doves to their lattices? Surely the coastlands will wait for me and the ships of Tarshish. That's trade from really far off. The ships of Tarshish are bringing in trade and wealth to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel because He has glorified you. We'll serve God in eternity. We'll be working for Him. And we'll be glorifying Him with all that we do. Let's look at number 10 now. 10. So we've talked about full of peace, comfort and joy. A place of unending worship. A holy service to the Lord. Now number 10, there's going to be a great reunion of all the saints. If you ask most people about heaven, this is generally what they'll accept. The other things aren't well known or they're not going to be accepted by sort of the average person in the western civilization but there is this idea always that will we get we'll get to meet everyone who's passed away well there will be a grand gathering of the saints in the eternal state of all those who trusted in christ either in the old testament as they were looking to the messiah and they were following god or in the new testament as they look back to the cross 
And there will be a great reunion. It will be great. And we will get to see our loved ones in Christ. It's already hinted of this and, and specifically said that we'll be resurrected with Him. First Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So whoever's already passed away and died in Christ, trusting in Christ, they're going to be raised first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. The assumption is we get our new body as well if we're alive there. We caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. That's the first reunion. And Christ is coming back. All the Old Testament saints will be reunited. One big great celebration. All those who are resurrected in the Lord will be together. And we'll see each other all the time. And we'll rejoice and worship the Lord in the New Jerusalem. See each other, work together, serve one another, love one another in the new earth. Will we have relationships? We don't know exactly what those will look like. Christ talks about how there won't be marriage. We're not sure as to what relationships will look like, but we will have some kind of relationship. God said it was not good for man to be alone. Genesis 2.18 there's no proof that loving others and that having an interest in people will distract us from serving the Lord, from loving the Lord. First John makes the case over and over that loving others is evidence that we love God. If it is in this life, why wouldn't it be in the next? Some people say, well, that's going to be distracting. We can't worship God. We can't work for God if there's people, you know, the introverts maybe of us might say that. It's just going to be sort of a, a solo existence, just me and God, and everybody's having that solo existence with God. But you know, Jesus spent a lot of time with people. Was he distracted from serving the Lord? He spent a lot of time with people, didn't he? He had a group following him all the time. He had to actually try to run away and hide just to get some prayer time. Moses and Elijah, when they come and they meet with the Lord in, in their glorious appearance upon the mountain, they're spending time. Together and with Christ. The second greatest commandment in the Bible is to love our neighbor. The Bible makes every indication that we'll be having some sort of social interaction. We just don't know exactly what that will look like because we're not familiar with it. Now some say, well, we won't recognize anyone in eternity. How can we have a relationship? I'll have my mind wiped clean and won't remember what you guys look like. Well, Jesus was recognized when he was resurrected. They recognized him. Now, the two guys on the road didn't at first recognize him because he was hiding himself from them. But his disciples, when he walked into the room, recognized him. All those who came to see him, 500 disciples came to see him, recognized him. There was a similarity. There was a similarity. We will recognize one another in heaven. Moses and Elijah, again, on the transfiguration. Peter recognized them. We don't even know how he knew that was Moses and Elijah, but there was a recognition there. So again, there's every indication that we're going to recognize one another. We won't be exact. I don't think we'll look exactly like we do, but there's enough there that we'll know each other more than just spiritually. We'll know each other physically in appearance as well. That means we're going to have a remembrance. We're going to remember others. We're going to be able to have this great reunion with them because we remember who they are. We're going to rejoice. 
There's no indication that we'll have our memories wiped out. In fact, if you look at different passages, like when Samuel spoke from the grave, he remembered Saul and what Saul had done. And the rich man in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, Abraham says to him, child, remember that during your life you received good things. So remember back to your life, you received good things. And likewise, remember Lazarus, bad things. But now he's being comforted and you are in agony. The martyrs in Revelation 6, they also are told to remember, they're remembering that God might avenge their blood. We're not going to forget everything that ever happened. But there won't be any sadness either. That's hard for us. That we'll remember everything that's happened in our life. We'll remember others that we met. But there won't be any sadness over that. It'll just be joy. It'll just be peace, comfort. Because we'll be honoring the Lord with all that we do, all that we think, all that we say. Number 11. Number 11 is we'll have a richness. We will be rich in eternal rewards. So not only do we get all these blessings and we get to, to see those that we've lost in Christ. We get to rejoice in our, in our sons and daughters, the miscarriages, those who've passed before us, our parents. We'll be rich in eternal rewards even beyond this list. It's hard to think how can we be more rich than we would be in Christ's presence. But you can't. You can't actually have anything greater than Christ. But Christ has promised that he will give his children rewards. This is often scoffed at by Christians. Some like to say there's no such thing as eternal rewards. Some will say that uh, Christians shouldn't talk about that. It will distract us from Christ if we talk about rewards. Some think it's completely wrong. Some theologians say that all these descriptions in the Bible about rewards are just telling you how glorious Christ is. Well, he is glorious, but he himself is talking specifically about rewards. It's what a father wants to give his children. God the Father wants to give us good things in this life, the Bible says. Of course, in the next as well. Matthew nineteen twenty-eight, Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, That you who followed me in the regeneration, when all things are made new, when everything is restored, the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon the twelve thrones. He's talking to the twelve disciples. Judging the twelve tribes. So what are these guys going to be doing for their work? There's some kind of judges, some kind of rulers of the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses and brothers and sisters and father and mother or children, farms for my name's sake, will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. There's going to be a reward. We shouldn't get focused just on that and, and say, I can't wait for that good stuff. And forget about Christ. No, that's all coming with Christ. He's giving it. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 8, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. So that's a reward, having, a, having righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So righteousness itself is a reward. It's a reward that Christ gives us now, so we're justified. But it's an eternal reward as well. And the Bible talks over and over about doing good works in this life and how we can grow in godliness and we'll be rewarded for that. It's a motivation, just like the torments of hell is a motivation to stay away from hell. The pleasures... The riches of heaven is a motivation for us to keep on keeping on, to persevere in the faith, 
Yes, to see Christ. He's our primary objective. But when we get to him, he has rewards. Our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions now as believers will be rewarded in heaven. All believers are going to face Christ someday and they're going to get rewarded for what they've done. They won't get punished with eternal life if they're truly in Christ, but they will get rewarded or, or lose rewards based on what they've done. Let me show you a few passages. Go to 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3.11. This is a longer one. We won't, we'll just read sections of it. This one has been misused and Catholics think this is purgatory. But it's describing a judgment. What we call the Bema Seat Judgment. Bema is a Greek word that's used in these texts to speak of the platform that the ruler, in this case Christ, sits on. It's not a judgment seat. That's different. This is a Bema Seat. An announcement. We might say it's an announcement rostrum or announcement stage. As opposed to the judge's seat. 1 Corinthians 3.11 For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So he's our foundation. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, or wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it. It is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So there's going to be a believer's judgment. And the idea here is that all things are going to be cleared away. And it's going to be real clear to everyone, including Christ. But he already knows, of course, what you built upon. You have Christ as your foundation. What did you do with what God gave you? Now, in this case, he's talking about ministry because there's all kinds of false apostles coming in. But it applies to all of us. Christ has saved you. He's your foundation. Now, what are you doing with your life, your time, your resources? The good thing here is to build with gold, silver, precious stones. To do it for Christ. To do what He tells us for His name's sake, for His glory. But if we do it for our own selfish reasons, that's building with wood, hay, and straw. Now, which one's going to be burned up when the fire comes through? Wood, hay, and straw. We did it for ourselves. We did it for ourselves, for our glory, Boasting in ourselves, not for Christ. He goes on. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If it was done for the right reasons, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Meaning he won't get the reward, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. This is not purgatory. This is saying... Then when the fire comes through and wipes the slate clean, we're going to be able to see, and everyone's going to see, Christ is going to see your work, what it was for, why you did it. And if you did it for the wrong reasons, you'll still be saved. You don't get kicked into hell. Christ has died for you. He's redeemed you. You've trusted in Him. And then He's going to cast you out. No one can lose their salvation. That's not possible. But Paul says He'll be saved, yet as through fire. Nothing He built will last. Nothing he did was for the right reason. Go on to verse uh, chapter 4, verse 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, Paul says. Stop judging one another. But wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives. See, he's talking about motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now go to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5. 
verse 9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat. It's really Bema seat here. It's different than the other types of judgments mentioned like in Revelation. We'll all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one will be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Paul's writing to believers. He's writing to the Corinthians. There might be some false believers there, but in general he's saying, look, all of us believers, including Paul, are going to stand before Christ and he's going to reward us for what we've done. And the, the implication is strive now to please the Lord. Not to be justified, but grow in your sanctification so you can be blessed forever with these rewards. We don't even know what there will be. We, we know that there's some reigning and ruling going on. Remember that parable where he says, uh, you come and reign over these cities and you've done a good job. You can have these number of cities. So there must be some sort of governmental structure implied by that parable and other verses. Different types of work might be the reward. Living places, we don't know. Even the person who has no rewards but gets into heaven based on the blood of Christ will be extremely joyful forever and ever. It's not like they're going to sit around and be upset that they didn't get the rewards. They'll just know. They do it for the right reason in this life. Strive now, in other words. Strive now to get these rewards in heaven. It's going to be rich. We have the riches of God's grace now spiritually. We're going to get them physically forever and ever. Well, the last one. Heaven is difficult to enter. I said that hell was easy to enter. It's easy because everyone's already going there. You're born in sin. You start sinning. It only takes one sin to go to hell. Of course, we all commit more than one sin. Everyone's already going to hell. Not everyone's already going to heaven. See, the assumption in our world is everyone's going to heaven and you really have to work hard to get into hell. Jesus said it's quite the opposite. It's quite the opposite. Matthew 7, 13. I'm sure you've heard this. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. A broad gate leads to hell. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small. It's small. And the way is narrow that leads to life. He's talking about heaven. Eternal life. And there are few who find it. It's not that God's trying to trick people here. They don't want to get in. They don't even look for it. They're not even looking for it. It's difficult to enter. Why? Because it goes against our sinful nature. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But a man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. It's hard for people to get into heaven. Why? First of all, they don't even care. And he goes on to say in that verse, he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. He's not able to and he doesn't want to. Galatians 5.19 describes the deeds of the flesh. We just looked at that a few weeks ago in our Bible study. Paul says here's the deeds of the flesh. They're evident. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, things like these. He just gets tired of listening. Just everything like that. Which I forewarn you just as I forewarned you in the past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why is heaven difficult to enter into? Because sin is so easy. Sin is so easy. Man loves the darkness, Jesus said, more than the light. 
Heaven's difficult to enter into because a life of repentance and sacrifice is not easy. It's hard. That's why Jesus said constantly, he was saying to them in perfect tense, constantly, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must what? Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, that's not a popular message. What happened to people when Jesus said that to them? They went away. They left. He said hard things and they left because it's hard. It's not popular. That's why people today change the gospel and make it easy believism and make it easy to come to Christ. And Jesus said it's hard. You got to take up your cross. Not that you got to try harder, but it's hard for our hearts. We have to humble ourselves. We have to be poor in spirit. Heaven's difficult to enter because riches and pleasures of this life distract us. Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into the kingdom of God. Why? Because wealth distracts. You're not looking for heaven if you're just concerned about this life. Heaven's difficult to enter because it requires complete perfection. Jesus said, you have to be perfect. You remember the, the guy came and he said, teacher, what good things shall I do to obtain eternal life? Now that's a question we want to know the answer to, right? How do we get eternal life? He said, first of all, why are you calling me good? There's only one who's good. Because the guy didn't even believe that Jesus was the son of God. So he's trying to evangelize him right there. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Guy says, of course I've done that. Then Jesus says, okay, give everything and follow me. Yeah, that's a problem. Then he left, right? Well, Jesus says, you got to be perfect like my Father in heaven is perfect. Who can do that? Who can be perfect? None of us. None of us can be perfect. So what do we do? How are we going to get into heaven? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. The only way to get into heaven is through Christ. He's the perfect one. He's the door that gets us into the sheepfold. He's the one that gets us into the narrow gate, on the narrow road. He's the one. We're not even looking for an entrance to heaven until Christ shows up in our life and points us and grabs us and basically throws us through. And then we love it. It changes our heart. But you see, heaven is difficult to enter. Sometimes people say it's hard for for Christians to accept that. It's hard for Christians to accept that. But let's go to Luke 13, 22. Here's what I read. Here's what I hear. God's victorious. Obviously, there'll be more people in heaven than hell. God would never let everyone who sinned go to hell. He's going to give them a second chance. God's so kind and so good that he'll save everyone. That's the universalist position. Jesus was asked a very specific question, and it's the very thing I'm saying to you here. Luke 13, 22. We'll just close with this. He was passing through one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on in his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? See, Christians say that's not possible. God's going to save more people. God can do whatever he pleases, but once he said it in Scripture, that's what he's going to do. And Jesus said, first of all, the road is narrow. And there's not many people on it. And that's not God's fault. That's our fault. But here's how Jesus answers this question. Notice what he says. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And he goes on to talk about why this is. So he's asked a direct question. And he doesn't answer it directly. But he, he does, in a sense, get to the point with the parable He says, the point is, don't worry about how many God's going to save and how many are are going to hell. You don't know the numbers. 
You don't know the percentages. Think about your own eternity, is what he's saying. You better strive to enter in through the narrow door. You better think about it. Because it will be too late, he says, when I come back. Of course, more are going to go down the road to hell because it's easy. We don't know the exact numbers, but he does say, think about your own existence, your own eternity. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he, this is Jesus, the Lord, will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. And you will begin to say, we ate, we drank with you. We went to church, Grace Bible Church. We went every Sunday. We visited there. I went with my parents. You taught in our streets. We heard the Bible preached in church, Jesus. And he will say to you, I tell you, I do not know where you're from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God but yourselves being thrown out. They will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. It's hard to get there, because the only way there is Christ. And you're not going to be in heaven just because your parents are Christians. You're not going to be in heaven just because you came to church today. You're not going to be in heaven because you did some good thing. You'll be in heaven because of Christ. And if you are there, you get all these 12 or 11 things we've already talked about. But if you're not going there, You better trust in Christ now before it's too late. He said he's coming back and it's going to be too late and people are going to be knocking on the door, figuratively speaking. But we we did all this great stuff. He says, I never knew. There is a time when it will be too late. Heaven is wonderful. Believers ought to be excited and edified thinking about heaven. But only those who trust in Christ will get to go. So if you're a believer, rejoice. And if you're not trusting Christ, you should be scared. Go back and listen to the sermon on hell. You should want to be in heaven. Lord, we do pray that that would be the case for us today. We should be excited about heaven. And I pray that those who are not going there, that you would wake them up. Christ is coming back. It's going to be too late. We need to be awake and aware and ready. I pray that you would save them, Lord. Save them here today. For your glory. So they can be with us. So they can glorify all that you are. And your wondrous majesty. Let us rejoice in heaven. In Christ's name. Amen.